right. Open your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 1. And as you're finding your place there, we're going to go ahead and have a word of prayer and ask God to speak to our hearts this morning as we kick off our new series entitled, When Life Seems Unlivable. Uh, and if you've never been there, uh, you will be. It, it happens to everybody. And uh, maybe not as severe as it happened to others, but uh, you, you will get there at some point to some degree. And we'll talk about what that means in just a minute. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 1, let's have prayer together. Father, without you we're nothing. And without your help, we're hopeless. Lord, we love you and, and we know that we'll never be able to love you to the degree that you love us. Father, I know that you love us even more than we love ourselves. And we this morning acknowledge and thank you from the bottom of our heart that you love us like you do. Father, I also thank you for giving us a book we call the Bible that literally are your words to us to encourage us, to teach us, to help us not only to know what to do in our life, but to find out what you're like. To know that we can trust you and that you are in control. And so this morning, Lord, as we begin this short mini-series about when life gets really, really, really difficult, Lord, use your word to help us. I thank you in advance for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, look at Jeremiah chapter 1, verse number 4. The Bible says, The word of the Lord came to me, that's Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Let's stop there for a second. God has come to Jeremiah. By the way, Jeremiah was a prophet who was going to prophesy or basically deliver a message from God to the children of Israel. And he was a unique prophet because he prophesied prior to the Israelites going into captivity in Babylon, but he also prophesied during the early part of their captivity. So he was on both sides of that fence. He was with them when God said, It's coming, and then he was there when it happened, and he was there when they were on the other side. So Jeremiah was in a unique position. Now, at the time this verse took place that we're reading, he didn't know all that yet. But God reminds him before he ever begins of this one thing. Jeremiah, I want you to understand, before you were ever formed in your mother's belly, I already knew who you were. By the way, for those of you that are wondering about when life begins and and all of that relative to abortion, this should settle all that for you. Life does not begin at conception. Physical life begins at conception, but our life in the mind of God began long before that. Because God told Jeremiah, before conception, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I, God, already knew who you were. So you're not insignificant. You are very significant to God. He didn't... Accidentally. And by the way, none of us were accidents. Mom and dad didn't slip up. 
And here we are. There, there are no slip-ups with God. God formed us. So you're not an accident. You're an on purpose. And there is a reason for you to be here. God doesn't do anything by chance. If God didn't want me here, I wouldn't be here. And by the way, if God doesn't want me here now, I'm not going to be here very much longer. The day that I die is the day God says, your job is done, come on home. So, understanding this helps us to be able to handle life when it seems unlivable. You know what Dr. Carney said this morning was so good, and I hope that in your worship guide, the list of the things we need to focus on when life gets really difficult, I hope you keep that, because that is the key. When things start to fall apart in our life, I don't need to start focusing on the problem. I need to go back and focus on who God is and the fact that he's got a reason. He loves me. There is a purpose. So Jeremiah is reminded, first of all, because God knows what he's about to tell Jeremiah. He said, I want you to understand everything I'm about to tell you is all a part of my plan for you. And I knew you before you were ever formed, so you're not here by accident. I, God, put you, Jeremiah, here for this time. Let's keep going. Verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Literally all that means is I had something specific I needed you to do. That's why I put you in your mother's womb and gave you physical life and you were born. I have a job for you to do. And that same thing is true with every one of us. We are not on this earth by accident. There is something for us to do. And it's God's plan for my life. He said, I appointed you, and he told him what his was. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah, I, I need you to go deliver some messages for me to the nation of Israel. Now, that's what you're going to be doing. Jeremiah never even thought about this. I mean, this wasn't even in his mind. And God comes to him and says, here's what I want you to do. Now, Jeremiah, in verse 6, does probably the same thing most of us have a tendency to do. When God speaks to our heart and we have an idea of what it is God wants us to do. Normally, whatever it is God wants us to do is going to be something that after it's done, there's no question that God did it. It wasn't me. Because I couldn't do this. So it's not going to be something insignificant. It's not going to be something easy. And it's not going to be anything more than likely that I can stand up and take credit for. So here's what Jeremiah says. He says in verse 6, Ah, sovereign Lord. That means, God, I understand you are the boss. You're sovereign. But he said, I don't know how to speak. I'm just a child. God, wait a minute. You want me to be a spokesman for you to the nations. God, I can't talk. I'm just a kid. Number one, I don't have the ability to stand up in front of people. More than likely, the implication is, God, I'm scared to death to stand up in front of people. And, and besides all that, I'm just a kid. Who's going to listen to me? I'm just a child. Nobody's going to listen to me. Look at what he says in the next verse. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a child. By the way, don't think you're insignificant and you're not important or you can't do this because you can't. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. I thought it was interesting that he said, you must go. Hey, Jeremiah, this, this is not a, a debate here. This is not an offer, take it or leave it. You got to go. 
How many times have you and I done things that turned out to be great that initially when we realized we needed to do it, we thought there's no way I can do this, but we were forced to. We didn't have a choice. We were made to do it. I thought about this. Um, my youngest daughter, Rachel, uh, has been out of school for over a week, and we found out Friday, at least about 98%, that she has mono. Um, and she's been, I mean, my daughter has enough energy for five kids. She literally, for a week, has been in the bed all day long sleeping. I mean, she didn't get up and do anything. Uh, when we first went into the doctor, the middle of last week, all the glands in her neck were swollen. All the glands in her sinus cavities were swollen, and she had a huge knot on her neck. They did the mono test. It came back negative. So, of course, as parents, we immediately start running to all of the bad things that could happen. And, of course, the big C word, cancer, was the first thing we all thought about. You know, does my little 13-year-old daughter, does she have cancer? And having had a brother who died with leukemia, it's even more prevalent that I worry about that kind of stuff. Well, come to find out, we went back and they've run some more tests, and more than likely, they say, it is mono. Well, you know, the issue with Rachel is um, when we went in to get the test, Rachel's like my wife. She hates needles. Now, I don't know too many people that get overly joyed about needles, but my wife and my daughter are extremely unattracted to needles. I mean to the point to where it's almost embarrassing when we have to go in and one of them's got to get stuck. Well, my daughter, we go in and she finds out she's going to have to get a needle. Not the little pinprick on the end of the finger, the big daddy in the arm, you know. And so this lady comes in and uh, she brings out the big daddy, you know, this needle with his long tube on it that she's going to plug into all these uh, test tubes to get all this blood. And so she grabs Rachel's arm and she starts tapping it like this. And she says, and Rachel's got this gigantic vein. She says, oh, you're going to do great. Rachel says, for what? Well, we we got to draw blood. Rachel says, you mean you're going to use a needle? Well, yeah. Rachel, and this is the generation in which Rachel grabs her cell phone and starts calling her best friend and sticks it up to her ear. I said, what are you doing? i got to talk to Jessica while I'm getting my arm. I said, you close that phone up. You can't talk to somebody while you're getting, Daddy, come hold my hand. I am not going to hold your hand. You have got to do this. I'm a big, mean daddy. You have got to do this. i got eight kids. Look, after about three, you turn into an ogre. You got to do that. Daddy, I can't. Yes, you can. You know what? She sat there like a big girl. They pulled four huge vials of blood out of her arm. She never flinched, never cried, never moved. We got done. She said, that wasn't so bad. I think I could probably do that again. I said, do you want to? No, not right now, but I could probably. And you know, that whole idea, you know what she told me? She actually said earlier in the week they pricked her finger and they kept squeezing it like this to get the blood. You know what she said? The one in the arm was actually better than the one in the finger. I liked it better. Well, what was the deal? She was made to go through a situation that she didn't think she could handle, but after it was over, she realized, hey, that wasn't so bad. Next time, I won't be quite as nervous but she would have never known it had she not been made 
to go through it. You know, God sometimes does that to us. He has a plan for our life, and He's got something He wants us to do, but He makes us go through situations that, first of all, we probably wouldn't choose to go through. And number two, when we find out what they are, we probably don't want to go through them, but we don't have a choice. He puts us in a situation where we have to. He told Jeremiah, you must go to these people. You don't have a choice. And then he goes on to to remind him, but you don't need to worry. I'll tell you what to say. I'll take care of everything. Don't worry about thinking you're a child that nobody's going to listen to you. That's my job as God. I'll take care. You just do what you can do. I'll do what you can't. And then in verse number 9, the Bible says, Then the Lord reached out his hand, and he touched my mouth. And he said to me, Now I've put my words in your mouth. See, today I've appointed you over nations and kingdoms to uproot, to tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Look at verse number 12. I've read this story a lot, and I never really paid attention to this verse, but it's huge. Verse number 12. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly. He, he saw a, an almond tree, and, and God said, Jeremiah, what do you see? He said, this is what I see. And then Jeremiah said, or God told Jeremiah, here's what that means. Look at verse 12. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Hey, Jeremiah, do you know who's going to make sure that when you're going through this and doing what God asks you to do, you know who's going to make sure it all works out? God. You don't have to worry about making it happen. God is going to be watching to make sure his word and his purpose is accomplished in your life. And you know, the same thing's true with every one of us. God is watching over us to make sure His Word, His purpose, is fulfilled in my life. There are a couple other places I want to show you real quick. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. Um, Let me show you a couple of things that Jeremiah finally admitted after he had been doing this for about 31 chapters. Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 17. Jeremiah's praying. And he says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm, and nothing is too hard for you. Nothing. Look at verse number 26. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Verse 27. Is anything too hard for me? When life seems unlivable, what happens is we come to a place in our life where we think, I can't go on. In essence, what we say is, God blew it, God forgot about me, God doesn't know what he's doing, God has forsaken me, and I finally run into something that's too hard for God to handle. In essence, that's what we say when we get to the place where we, in our hearts, say, I can't go on anymore. I can't do it anymore. In essence, we say, God is not God. And whatever he said, he didn't really mean it. And I will tell you this. If God is not God and he doesn't mean what he says, we're all in a heap of trouble and life is definitely unlivable. However, you know as well as I do, that's not true. God is God. There are, um, let me give you real quick five things that I found in Jeremiah chapter 1 about God. Number one, God has a purpose for my life. He told us that in verses 5 through 10 of Jeremiah chapter 1. Number two, God will make it happen. I don't have to worry about that. He told Jeremiah that in Jeremiah 1, verses 11 and 12. 
Number three, there will be difficulties. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 1. Let me show you this. This is interesting. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 18. The Bible says, Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. Look at what God tells Jeremiah in verse 19. They will fight against you. God never promised that when he told us to do something, it's going to be easy and there wouldn't be opposition. There's always going to be opposition. He said they're going to fight against you, but will not overcome you. Yeah, there's going to be a fight, but guess what? You're going to win because I'm on your side. You're going to win for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. So God told Jeremiah, he said, you know, i got a plan for you. I'm going to make it happen. You're going to have some difficulty. And then number four, we're going to make mistakes. And, you know, we might even stray away from the Lord for a while. That's why in Jeremiah chapter 1, Verses 14 through 16, God tells Jeremiah why he's going to send the children of Israel into captivity. He said, because they have forsaken me and they're offering sacrifices to other gods. They forgot about me. By the way, let me ask you this. Why was the Babylonian captivity, why did the Israelites go through all of these 70 years of trial and disaster and hard times and and seemingly tragedy, what was God's ultimate purpose in doing all that? Was it to say, I am God, and I'm going to prove to you that I'm God, and you're not going to disobey me because I'm the big mean guy upstairs, and I am going to smack you if you disobey me. So you better disobey me, or I am going to beat you up. Is that why he did that? I don't think any of us really believe that. And yet, when things go wrong in our life, do we not sometimes have a tendency to think that? Remember what Dr. Carney said this morning, if you heard his message? What? Remember the widow who lost the son? What did she say? Man of God, why have you come here? What have I done to deserve this? You know, sometimes we didn't do anything. Sometimes it's just what God wants to do to help us grow and learn. What was the ultimate purpose in the captivity? One thing. God wanted his people to come back to him. That was it. I want my children to come home. That's all. Because if they come home, they'll be blessed and protected. This is the best place for them. I just want them to come back. And I know this is what it's going to take to get them back. Sometimes we're going to make mistakes and we're even going to kind of turn our back on God. But that's okay. Everything that's happening... God wants me back. And that's what he's doing. And then finally, God not only wants us to come back, but he wants us to continue on with the purpose for which he called us. And that's why in Jeremiah chapter 29, the verses we just looked at a few minutes ago, or Jeremiah chapter 32, that uh, Jeremiah realized there's nothing too hard for God. Now I want you to look at one other verse, and uh, then I'm going to share a little bit about my personal testimony for about 15 minutes we're going to be done. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29 is an interesting passage in this story because the children of Israel are now in captivity. And they're going through this, the hardship of Babylon. And God has to remind them of what we just talked about, that I have a purpose. But what is God's purpose? 
Jeremiah chapter 29, I want you to look first of all at verse number 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So he's speaking through Jeremiah to all the Jews that are now in captivity in Babylon. Now here's what he's telling them. Now remember where they are. Their city's been torn down. Babylonians have come in. They've taken them all slaves back to Babylon. They're not exactly living in luxury. And God says this. Look down with me at verse number 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon. You know, that's how long you guys are going to stay here. 70 years. But when it's over, I will come to you. You know, those 70 years of captivity in Babylon are symbolic in our lives of those times when we either get mad at God or we turn our back on God or we think God doesn't love us or we quit walking with God. And by the way, if you've never been through one of those times, you probably will. Hopefully it won't last very long, but we all go through them. And God says, at the end of whatever I'm doing to get you to come back home, He says, I'm going to come to you. That's what he told these people. Look, he says, when these 70 years are over, I will come to you. You know what that means? God loves me and wants me back more than I want to be back. He is offensively, aggressively going to come after me. So don't ever think God doesn't love you. Don't ever think God's mad at you. Don't ever think God doesn't care about you. Don't ever think that God says, well, you know, they've blown it now. It's over. By the way, why do we think that sometimes about God? Because that's how other human beings treat us sometimes. But God is not a man. And that passage means a human that he acts like us. He doesn't. God loved us so much he gave his own son to pay for our sins. God loves us more than we love ourselves. And so he says, I'm going to come to you in the 70 years of over. And what is he going to do? He said, I will come to you. Fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. I want you back. What is his plan? Verse 11. A lot of you know this verse, and you've heard it before. You need to realize it applies to you and me. He says, for I know the plans I have for you. God's got a plan for your life. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. What does that mean? That means life never becomes unlivable. There's always hope and there's always a future because God has a plan. Now why then do we ever come to the place where life seems? That's why the title of our series, and, and if you read my blog that I've been writing for the last two months, that's the title of my blog series right now, When Life seems unlivable. Because as a believer, life is never unlivable. It just seems that way sometimes. Why is it? Because in John chapter 10 and verse number 10, and this is where we'll close, and let me share something about my life. In John chapter 10 and verse number 10, Jesus says this, the thief, Satan, comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. That's what Satan wants to do to our lives. He wants to kill us. He wants to steal everything we've got. And he wants to destroy 
our life. So when life seems unlivable, and in my mind, when I start thinking I can't go on, suicide's the only option, I don't have any hope, there is no future, who am I listening to? Satan. He's got me right where he wants me, and he's about to destroy me. But you know what Jesus said in the latter part of the verse? But I came that you might have life. And have it abundantly. That word abundantly in the Greek language literally means super abundance. More than I will ever be able to handle in my life. That's how good it is. When I get in God's plan and I stay there. But just like Ed said this morning, sometimes God's plan includes difficulty. It doesn't mean that it's not a plan to prosper me. It doesn't mean it's not a plan to bless me. It doesn't mean that it's not a plan to help me accomplish God's purpose. But sometimes that plan involves some difficulty. But don't give up. Um, I told you I was going to share a little bit about my testimony. Because I've been through all of this a half a dozen times or more in my life. Uh, I was born, for some of you who don't know anything about me, I was born the oldest of six boys in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I'm 52 years old. For those of you that are like me, you're not good at math. That means I was born in 1960. And uh, I was the oldest of six boys when I was 11 years old. Um, I got involved in things I probably shouldn't have been involved in as an 11-year-old, smoking pot and drinking alcohol and all kinds of other stuff. And you say, you really? yeah, I, I really did. And, and I, I think it was 11. It might have been sooner, but, uh, but I was a mess. When I was 13 years old, my 11-year-old brother, Bobby, died with leukemia. I was not a Christian. I blamed God. I got mad at God at the funeral home. I actually used God's name in vain and cursed God out loud because he let my brother die. I didn't understand that. I mean, you say you love me, God. Very similar to what I had talked about this morning. Then why is my brother gone? It's not fair. I had been going to church all my life, but I went to a, uh, I mean, it was a good church. I just wasn't. And to me, church was two hours of wasted time every Sunday morning. I mean, I sat on the back row in a, an auditorium where some guy stood up and used words 18 feet long. I didn't know what they meant. They, they didn't have any relevance to me in my life. Church was boring to me. As a matter of fact, it was not only bad enough we came on Sunday morning, we went back every Sunday night, and we went back every Wednesday night, and I was involved in all these things that the youth group had, but our youth group was really little, and we really didn't do a whole lot. There was, however, one lady who taught my Sunday school class when I was about 9, 10 years old. Many a Sunday, I would go into this Sunday school class, and I'd be the only kid in the whole class. And I can remember this lady... Her name was Miss Abercrombie. Miss Abercrombie would take me out. We, we had our, our church was on two pieces of property with a creek running in the middle and a little bridge that went from the Sunday school area to the auditorium. And we would go out, Miss Abercrombie and I, when I was about 10 or 11, 9, 10, 11, we'd sit on this bridge. And she would open her Bible and she would talk to me. And she would say, Bill, I, I, well, they called me Billy back then. She said, Billy, let me read you a verse. And she said, what, what do you think that means? And I, I would usually say, I don't know. And she would begin to explain to me who God was and how much he loved me. And that all of this stuff that I saw in church did have something that was real. But it was this one lady talking to me one-on-one. 
that caused me to realize that. Well, I got into a lot of trouble when I was 15 years old. My younger brother and I were sent to a boarding school in Central Florida. Um, I graduated from the junior high school. Our junior highs were 7th, 8th, and ninth grade. By the time I graduated from the junior high, I was getting ready to go to high school. I probably had maybe six months, and I was going to end up in juvie. I mean, I was a mess. So my parents found a Christian boarding school in Central Florida, and they sent my brother and I to this Christian boarding school. About a month after I was there, by the way, I hated it. There were about 100 kids there. There were rich kids, missionary kids, and kids in trouble. Of those 100 kids, about 85 of them were kids in trouble. There wasn't many rich kids, and we had a couple of missionary kids, but they were as bad as we were. So, I mean, it was, it was like being in juvie hall in a boarding school. And, uh, my, for example, my first week there, my buddy I'd met from the Bahamas, he and I both got attacked by this group of senior boys who supposedly were going to initiate us. And what they do is they'd come into your room at night, and they'd grab you and hold you down and beat the snot out of you. And I'll never forget the night that they went to my buddy's room, he had a metal pipe behind his bed. When they walked in, he pulled out this metal pipe, and they all ran out of the room. So I figured I'm going to have to learn to defend myself. When they came in my room that night, the big guy that everybody thought was so tough, he came over to me, and I just hit him before he had a chance to hit me. When he hit the ground, they all got up and left. And nobody ever bothered us again. But that's where I was. And I, I'd never been any place like this. I cried myself to sleep every night. I hated it. On September the 20th, 1975, a man came to our school and gave his testimony. And he talked about how God had blessed his life and all the things God had done for him. And for the first time in my life, I remember what Miss Abercrombie had told me, and I began to think, how come God has never done that for me? I mean, I've been going to church all my life. I've probably been baptized 14 times. I've joined a church at least five. How come God never does any of this stuff for me? And, you know, after listening to him talk, I realized it's because I don't know God personally. I know who he is. But he didn't live in here. And that night we were told that if you really want to know God and have a personal relationship, then you need to confess your sin and ask Jesus to come into your life. And he will come in, forgive you, be your Savior, and then you can really know him. I went back to my dorm room that night and I said, you know what? I am in a place where life is getting to be unlivable. I need help. And that night in my dorm room on my knees, September the 20th, 1975, I invited Christ into my life. And he began to change me. Now, lots of things happened. I left there my senior year. I went back home. Um, I, I was a Christian, but I didn't know how to live like a Christian. Because when I went back home, the only friends I had were the old ones. I didn't have any church friends. All my friends were either in gangs or drank all the time or took drugs or sold drugs. And that's all the friends I had. So that's where I went. And as a result, my life started going back down that old path of the way I lived. I went home. I graduated from a Christian high school. Got all kinds of accolades as a baseball and football player. Actually, went to Gardner-Webb University in Shelby, North Carolina, walked on and made the football team. And after about four weeks of getting my brains beat in as the scout team tailback and drinking myself to sleep every night, my unsaved roommate, a senior who graduated from Garinger High School in Charlotte, 
played middle linebacker for our football team, not a Christian. I was sitting on my bed, but he, he was my roommate in the athletic dorm. And we were sitting across from each other, and I was drinking a quarter beer, and I was talking about how my life was miserable and all this. Now, he knew that I, I was a Christian because we'd actually talked about that one time. And he looked at me, his name was Bubba. He looked at me, and he said, you know, Bill, maybe the reason you're miserable is because you're a Christian. You don't act like it. An unsaved guy. And you know what? The moment he said it, I knew he was right. I went back home. girl I'd been dating while I was off at college went to church. She gave her heart to the Lord. So when I went back home, she wouldn't date me no more. I thought she lost her mind. I mean, I was the catch of Nashville. I thought this would be over with. You know, this is one of them teenage revivals, you know. They get all excited for God, and they're like bottle rockets. They take off really big. They blow up and make a lot of noise, and then they fizzle out. So I figured I just got to wait for her to fizzle out. We can go right back to where we started. Well, fortunately for me, she didn't fizzle out. She finally invited me to go to church one night. And I thought I went to church. Some of you have been in my house, and I've got these two pictures in my office. One is me standing in my office when I was pastoring a church. The other one is a picture of my ID card from college the spring that I went to church with my girlfriend. It looks like Charles Manson's twin brother. I went to church this night, sat down, church about 700 people, preacher, priest, and everything he said, I knew it was right at me. He gave one of those invitations to go forward. I wasn't going forward. I got up, walked out as soon as they said amen. I, my girlfriend was with me. We got in the car. I took her home, never said a word all the way home. Dropped her off. I lived on the other side of Nashville, about 30 minutes away. I drove to my house, went in, tried to go to sleep. Every time I got stoned or drunk and started feeling sick, if I could go to sleep, I could sleep it off, and I wouldn't throw up. I mean, you stick me with a thousand needles, but I hate to throw up. So I thought, if I could sleep, I'd sleep God off. And tomorrow morning, it'd be fine. Well, you can sleep a good drunk off, you can't sleep God off. I don't know. It was sometime between 1, 2, 2.30 in the morning. It was late. And I'm laying in bed. I can't go to sleep. And I just start crying. I'm a big, tough guy. I'm crying. And I have no idea why I'm crying. And all of a sudden, in my mind, Miss Abercrombie comes back. The guy at the boarding school comes back. The night I got on my knees and accepted Christ. All this comes back. And I realized, these tears are from God. If my life is ever going to make it again, I gotta let him take over. I got out of my bed and I got on my knees that night and I said, God, I don't know how to do this, but I am committing to you right now that if you will help me, I will do anything you tell me to do. I got up the next morning, I called the principal from the Christian school where I graduated, who was the only guy I knew that could tell me how to do this, and I said, last night, I decided I'm going to follow the Lord. I don't know what to do. What do I do? He began to disciple me. Long story short, I ended up leaving uh, the college where I was. I went to Bible college, graduated uh, with a master's degree in Bible exposition, started my own evangelistic ministry after God had called me to preach. And that's a whole other story I don't have time to tell you. But I will tell you this, that for the next 15 or 16 years, my life was wonderful. I was pastoring a church in Atlanta, Georgia. Church was growing. We had a Christian school. Things were great. And Satan came along again, and I got tired, and I just quit. I had an affair. Divorced my wife and my four kids. 
left the ministry. Five months into that, I sat down behind a barn in my my mom and dad's home in Nashville. Had a nine millimeter pistol in my hand, around in the chamber, the hammer pulled back, and my finger on the trigger. I stuck the barrel of that gun in my mouth because life was unlivable. I didn't want to live anymore. I had gone so far, and my heart was so devastated, and it was my fault. I just couldn't do it anymore. About that time, a thought came through my mind, and I know today that it was God I didn't mean, of my four children. And them having to live the rest of their life telling people that their daddy, who traveled all over the world preaching, telling everybody about how wonderful God was, left them and stuck a gun in his mouth like a coward and killed himself. You know, I realized I can't do that to my kids. I pulled a gun out of my mouth. I went inside crying, told my mama, I need help. She called my uncle who lived in Charlotte. My Uncle Bill said, get your butt in that car and get up here right now. So I did. That was the beginning of God putting my life back together. The short version is I ended up, um, Denise, my wife, we got married. Um, I went to work for Office Depot, which is a miracle in itself. Within two and a half years, I had gone from being the gopher for everybody to the district sales manager for the whole state of South Carolina, and they moved me and my whole family here. God didn't move me here to make money with Office Depot. He moved me here for Riverland Hills Baptist Church. Because when I first started coming here and I met Ed Carney and I became friends with Dr. Tim Phillips, God began to put my life back together again. That's been eight or nine years ago. Seven years ago, God opened the door because there were some people in this room right now, as a matter of fact, who went to the church and said, we want our own class. We're going to call it young professionals. We're young adults, and we want to have our own class. We need somebody to teach it. They called me from the church office and said, would you teach their class? And I said, no. Twice I said no. Because I, I didn't think I was qualified. I, mean, I knew what I'd done. I couldn't change that. Nobody's going to listen to me. Hey, Jeremiah, I'm just a child. I wasn't a child, but I'd blown it. I'd made mistakes. Nobody's going to listen to me. The third time they called, my wife answered the phone. She knew who it was, and she said, Don't you think God's trying to tell you something? And you know, the, you know the thought that ran through my mind? You know what happened last time you didn't listen to him? Maybe you better listen this time. So I got on the phone. I said, I'll tell you what. Here's the gig. I'll teach the class, but that's all I'm doing. I'm not taking role. I'm not planning activities. I ain't turning cartwheels to entertain everybody. I'll teach on the Bible, and that's it. And those of you that were here, they'll attest. That's all I did. And God also sent Charles and Diane Sibley at the same time. And they told me from the church office, all we want you to do is teach. We got another couple who God has brought here, and they don't want to teach. They want to do all that other stuff you don't want to do. And you know what? That dear couple has been here ever since then doing all that stuff I don't want to do. You know why they're not in here right now? They are up there getting our lunch ready so we can be together.
They've been doing it ever since they came here. And then God sent you here. You have done more for me than I will ever do for you. You and every young adult who has come through this ministry has been God's way of telling me life is livable. And i got a plan. A plan to prosper you. And it's a good plan. All you got to do is just listen to me and do what I say, and it'll all be good. We have young adults all over our city who probably need to hear this. We got people that make mistakes. We all make mistakes. You know, God didn't send Jesus down here because we're perfect. Thank goodness. We all make mistakes. But I will tell you this, and you tell all your friends that are having a hard time, life is livable, and it's worth living. And it's wonderful. Yeah, there's going to be some tough times, but it's still good. And God wants it to be good. Next week, we'll start looking at people in the Bible who were just like I was. They said, God, I want to die. We're going to look at what caused it and how God helped them overcome it. And hopefully, we will learn how to help other people, and maybe some of you, that are going through some of these same causes. There is an answer, and God's going to start showing it to us next week, okay? Father, thank you for all you do for us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for allowing us to be together. In 